people are settling in from the short break, I want to make a couple announcements and perhaps a uh, request. Um, for some of you uh, may remember, I spoke of a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Hanuman. Hanuman, it was his, not his given name, but his, uh, his teacher, our teacher, gave him the name Hanuman because he embodies the, the qualities of the Hindu character Hanuman, who, one who has uh, selfless service and devotion to life, to, in case of the Hindu tradition, to selfless service to Ram, to God. But he has this Hanuman quality. Hanuman was this uh, half-monkey, half-human uh, character with a lot of uh, spring, uh, but just so much devotion and goodwill. And Hanuman is uh, someone who I think for the last almost 20 years, on almost every Tuesday night before I come into the church or wherever I've been leading the group, we, che- we check in and we talk Dharma. And he's a, he's a fountain of Dharma. And so we have this wonderful little uh, connection that's gone on for all these years. Well, he is presently quite ill. I mentioned this a few months ago. He's ill in, with a mysterious illness that gives him a constant state of malaise, uh, something like chronic fatigue that was precipitated by having shingles. Uh, and after the shingles, this came on and he's he has a hard time getting around and he's not tired. He just has no energy. You, maybe you've heard or maybe you've been through this yourself. To make a long story short, he is in need of some support with food, with uh, some version of organic, highly nutritious, protein-rich wheel, meals on wheels of some sort, which means he, if there's anyone here who does that sort of thing, cooks food or would be willing to cook food, he, he actually needs something that's not too... Helter-skelter, he needs something regular and even would be willing to, obviously, be willing to pay for it. Anybody who does that work or who would be willing to offer service to, a, to another servant. Um, and if you do happen to enter into his home, it's like a temple and uh, it's wild. But, so I hope one of you or someone gets a chance to meet Hanuman. He's a great character, and he definitely needs help. And he's, please, great. Come talk to me at the end. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Have Great. Fantastic. Thank you, thank you, even for listening. It gives me a chance to talk about Hanuman. Love Hanuman. Hope he gets his juice back. The second thing, uh, just to, since we're doing a few announcements, there will be a little mention of something at the very end, but uh, a reminder, and this is really for everyone, it's, this is part, what I'm about to announce is part of the 60-day retreat, but it is completely open to everyone. We're doing two half-day retreats. The first one will be on March 3rd, Saturday, from 9 to 1 p.m. at the Happiness Institute at 1720 Market Street 
and public transportation has strongly suggested uh, street metered parking is close, but uh, it's limited. But um, this will be a, something that hopefully supports the people who have committed to 60 days of practice, but also to any of you who want to drop in for a little more sustained period in the middle of your daily life in the middle of the city. It's a wonderful thing to practice together in a sustained way with people if you haven't done it before. And it's actually a great way to build community, sangha, all that. So it, it's just a great thing to do on all levels. So all of you, whether you're doing the 60 days or not, please come and drop in for a little practice period. We'll sit, walk, do a little Dharma talk, some discussion, uh, mostly just be together in silence, uh, except for the conversation part of it. So thank you for that. And since this um, is being held at the Happiness Institute, it's a nice segue into the talk I wanted, to, or the stray thoughts I wanted to share tonight uh, about happiness. And somehow I felt inspired to just get back to the basics of what all this is about, everything that we do. It's, it's the, the answer that, um, or at least the question that all of us have and the desire that everyone has is to be happy and to be free of suffering. That's what, that's what unifies all of us. That is a universal desire. And I think it's even implicit in all creatures. They want to be well. They want to be safe. They, and we start the, the traditional practice of loving-kindness with the wish, may I be happy, and we offer the wish for others to be happy. It's always the first one, for the most part. Of course, we can make up our own order, or our own version, but traditionally, this is the, the, uh, the reflection of the deep longing that everyone has to be happy. Yet, with that most deep and universal desire, we, we often don't examine really what happiness is. And the Buddha was very clear about what he meant by happiness, exemplified by a simple line, but it's actually much more nuanced than it sounds. But the simple line was that the highest happiness, the highest happiness is peace. The highest happiness is peace. But when I hear that, I, I'm reminded that it's not just a peaceful feeling. A peaceful feeling, as you've probably noticed from your own life, your own, the waves of your life, the peaceful feelings come and they go. But the peace that he's speaking about is, is uh, a peace that even can pervade, even can meet periods of agitation, periods of, of, um, of confusion, a peace that is, would feel somewhat like a substratum, like an undercurrent that is able to hold all the joys and the sorrows. That's something like the feeling of um, equanimity, of balance. And this peace that I think the Buddha refers to is the very nature of our mind. When we, uh, when we stop moving toward or away from, when we settle back into the moment, we, rather than 
toppling forward into the imagined future or being pulled to the imagined past. We simply settle back into the moment, not looking ahead, not looking back. When we do that, when we are simply awake to the present moment, if in any moment we simply are present without consulting our memory, looking into uh, some the past to define ourselves, what most of us will realize instantaneously that what's left, what is here always and already when our mind is free of its preoccupations, which is another way of saying it's ju- we're just here, what most will realize instantaneously is what's left is peace. That for each of us, when all is said and done, that deepest longing, that which we're looking for, is, in fact, that which is looking. That we are what we're looking for. Our very nature. But because of our tendency to become confused about where both where happiness is to be found and what it is that brings happiness, we tend to, as it's described in the sutras, wander endlessly astray in, a, in what's called samsara, in the vicious cycle of going, looking everywhere else but here for happiness. Having our happiness associated with, dependent on, getting somewhere, becoming someone, accumulating something, having, experiencing, and it tends to be associated with satisfying some kind of hunger, satisfying some kind of desire. Consequently, the happiness that we tend to seek for is a happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. The happiness I just described, that that highest happiness of peace, it's unconditioned. It's, it's your nature. But, the hap- but what we ordinarily associate happiness with is happiness that depends on things being a certain way, generally dependent on things being pleasant. And we know how reliable pleasant is if you've paid attention so the Buddha had put this in very clear terms of describing two basic kinds of happiness. And I know you, this is, in some ways, this is Dharma 101, but I think all of us need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Somebody asked me why I was going to talk about this, and I said, because every day I notice my own mind inclined toward condition, happiness that depends on conditions, and I'm constantly meeting and seeing the, the whole world and meeting with people who, even though they want to have freedom, want to have spiritual freedom, want to have liberation, the hidden, the, the, the real desire, not the deepest desire, but the, but the more accurate reflection of what is really wanted is conditional happiness. I want to have, pleasant, I want to have a pleasant abiding. I want to have lots of stuff. I want to have the best relationship in the world. I want, I want to live in a nicer house. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. 
And it's um, and that I want, I want, I want leads to oi, oi, oi. It just does. As a teacher named Sri Nisargadatta put it, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the is the that natural happiness of conscious being, of being just being present. And look what this secret that we're overlooking, look what is right here, no matter what your circumstances. There's so much nourishment to be had if we could just come out of the tangle of what I want to happen. I know that I've shared the Rumi poem before where he says, failure is the key to the, we'll use the feminine, the queendom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. We, we exhaust ourselves with this search for what the Buddha called conditional happiness. He called it lokiya sukha. Sukha is the word for comfort, happiness, pleasure. And the word lokiya means worldly, conventional. We're caught up in seeking conventional happiness. And conventional happiness is not a problem because everybody, if we don't have any of it, we wouldn't be very happy. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to function. We all need conventional happiness. We need to have, the, we need to have our senses uh, impinged from now, now and then with, with beautiful sights and sounds and smells and tastes. We need the pleasure of connection. We need the pleasure of, of solitude. We need the pleasure of, of um, touch. We need sensual pleasure. Five out of our six doors of perception, and even the sixth one, you could say, are sensual organs, especially the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. So there is a value to a nourishment that comes through being able to enjoy the world of sense pleasures, to enjoy this worldly, conventional happiness. But the... What the Buddha made clear is that this kind of happiness, if we make this, if we become devoted and we're invited to be really honest with ourselves, if our devotion is to worldly happiness, we will be actually stuck. We will get caught. We will become bound in the other translation that he has for Lokiya Sukha. He calls it Rather than worldly or conventional happiness, he calls it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, because our sense of well-being is continually in a state of suspended of suspension, continually in a state of postponing, of waiting, of hoping, of projecting our well-being to some other moment other than the very living present that you are sitting in. And we will endlessly postpone being finding that peace until the conditions in our life turn out the way we want them to. We either get the job we want, the home we want, the person we want, 
get rid of the illness that we have, get the health that we want, whatever it is, our mind will endlessly, if we, are, if we fall into that misplaced faith, that's what the Buddha called it, misplaced faith, if we ca- fall into that misplaced faith, we will just enter into a, a life of endless waiting. Any of you recognize yourself, or th- at least that pattern of mine? This is, fortunately, we can notice this, and the noticing of it is our gong. It's our reminder to settle back and to ask ourselves, on present evidence, is there anything missing now? Now, I don't mean, if I sit back when I say, is anything missing now, I don't ask myself to think about my past or my future. I'm asking myself, really, when I'm here, when I let my mind sink into my body, even if it's agitated, even if my mind has been busy, just in that split second, can I find anything, anything that's really needed once I've awakened to this moment? As I speak a lot here, the tendency is to, for our mind to say, well, 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 but, but I... But, but, but I need, but, 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 and our endless buts, but. One of my teachers said, no buts, no buts. Try not picking up a but for one moment. (laughs) Try just feeling your butt for one moment. It's amazing how, at least for me, it it just cuts through whatever the drama is that suggests that I need something to be happy. Here's what Nisargadatta continued to say. He's the one who I just quoted by saying, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. He puts it this way. He says, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. Try that one on for a moment. A rare thought. There's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. That doesn't sound like our MO, does it? There's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of sadhana or meditation is to reach a point where this conviction instead of being only verbal, is based on actual and ever-present experience. Which experience, a questioner asks? The experience of being empty, open, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in this openness, this emptiness of all content. 
True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't just speak about the, the, what's sometimes described in the Tibetan tradition as the defects of samsara, the, the dangers of getting caught in the loop of having one's dependence on a happiness that, is, um, that, uh, that requires conditions to be a certain way. He also described a... He described what I spoke about at the beginning. He described a reliable kind of happiness, which he called Lokutra Sukha. Sukha, again, is comfort happiness. Lokutra means beyond the world, unstuck from the world, beyond the power and influence of conditions, which means the happiness of freedom, the happiness that is free of hunger, Rather than the happiness that that depends on satisfying hunger, this is the happiness that's free of hunger. The happiness that that doesn't depend on how things are. Can you imagine being well, having a sense of, we'll say, okayness, even when your body hurts, your mind is busy, your heart is sad, your bank account is low, your situation is, is, is precarious. Can you imagine having that immovable, that unshakable sense of, of equanimity, of balance, that can meet those joys and those sorrows without having this, your sense of well-being dependent on it? This is the encouragement of the teachings to aim for this highest happiness. And the good news is that if you aim for that kind of happiness, the happiness of freedom, that all the, all the other kinds of pleasure come in the wake of it. It's not as though you give up the things of this world. As Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but in realizing that they pass away. So we, we are able to then to experience the, the, the world of sense pleasures with great delight. In fact, we need delight. The world of pleasure, but, but without the clinging, without the dependency, without, the, without the, our life uh, in a state of tension, waiting, hoping that things turn out the way we want them to. Can you imagine not having that burden of needing the future to make you happy. Since it doesn't exist anyway. It's just an idea of the future. What a terrible place to hang your happiness. When it doesn't even exist. It's a phantom. It's a dream. It's a bubble. Wouldn't it be, isn't it wiser to find your relief in the only place you can actually find life? Yeah. <laughs> she knows. But she doesn't know that she knows, and that's why she'll have to practice too. <laughs> Maybe.
So as Hafiz puts it, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. So the Buddha didn't say, oh, become a rigid, you know, give up pleasure, give up desire. He just said, put it, just study, study the world of sense pleasures. Study how much time you spend waiting for them, looking for them, working for them. Look how much your life depends on pleasure when, when the winds of life blow both pleasure through and pain through. And to have wise, a wise view, wise understanding that everything that arises passes away. And, and each time that you experience something and become dependent on pleasure, the, you experience that great delight when you're experiencing something. But the wake of that is a feeling of loss. And what gets conditioned in our, in our consciousness is more, uh, more desire. When you see that very clearly, we see that, the, that holding on to anything that changes is, um, is foolish. It doesn't make any sense. But it's through a kind of delusion of consciousness that we be, believe that we can find happiness someday. I know that, uh, and that when I say you can find happiness someday, you can, but you can. But it's not someday, it's today. What is it that, uh, I think I have this with me tonight, from Eckhart Tolle. Tolle. Oh, let it be, let it show up here. It's here. Here, this is, this will... Just hold, it's a holdover until I find the right quote. But this is from the, my father sent me this back in 1976 from the Wall Street Journal. Had a fellow who had climbed up the top of the mountain to meet the guru. And he says, hey guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up here on the mountain all day. The guru responds, well at sunrise I get up and eat a handful of parched corn and start meditating. And then at noon, I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, french fries, hot dogs, banana splits, pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska, Twinkies, espresso. You can tell how dated this is. Twinkies. Last piece of paper I turned over turned out to be the one. Questioner asked Eckhart Tolle, I cannot believe I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems. And he responds, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point right now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. So we have to somehow 
find a more reliable sense of happiness than just the succession of pleasurable moments and a dependency on health, on wealth, on life, on dependency on anything that can change. But somehow we, our mind is programmed to, to live in a kind of deception about where happiness is to be find, found. And we, we used to, this is, a, I've stopped doing this so much, but I used to in Dharma talks, used to talk about, I stopped doing this because it, it reflects a, a kind of life that not that many people have, a kind of privileged life. But we used to joke about the, the perfect Marin County day. That if you wake up and you look into the eyes of your beloved, you have a little sensual encounter, then you roll out of bed into the hot tub, then you have a perfect uh, fruit salad, organic, and then you have more sensual time with your partner, then back into the hot tub, and then you stand together at the kitchen sink and have perfect uh, nouvelle cuisine or whatever. (laughs) Then you go and jog together and then to the spa and then maybe have a little shot of Botox and then... And lots of pleasurable... Well, that doesn't sound so pleasurable. But lots of... But linking a lot of pleasurable moments together and and then associating that with being happy. But unfortunately... It's true then, and when I was talking about it, but it's true now. It hasn't made anybody happy. It has mostly made us not taking anything away from having a pleasurable day like that. It's fine. But it's made us uh, addicted to a certain kind of sensual pleasure, which is a beautiful thing, but it's not a very reliable place to hang your hat because everything that arises passes away and leaves in its wake the seeds planted of dependency, the seeds of addiction. That's why the Buddha called the world of worldly pleasure the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. The tendency is, even when we come to meditation practice, to, in a, uh, in a, um, I wanted to say, in a closet kind of way, we're still looking for it. We're still looking for that sensual pleasure in we're still dependent on sensual pleasure even in our search for meditation experiences for our mind to be suffused with light what the Buddha calls to have super mundane happiness and it's it is true that meditation one of the byproducts of meditating of orienting ourselves to the present moment is it tends to give rise from time to time unbidden the feelings of great sense of unity, unmixed happiness, great joy, the joy of concentration, the joy of having a mind free of hindrances, wonderful experiences. But when they are made the aim of practice, it doesn't usually happen. And when we've been tasted an experience like that, the tendency is to spend the next months, years, trying to replicate that experience. This is just a different kind of samsara. It's just a little more high-class spiritual samsara. And this is exactly what the Buddha realized when he 
got involved in meditation practice, that even the most rarefied meditation experience, the most refined state of unity and oneness and open-heartedness, like even the most ordinary experience, has the nature to arise and pass. Not a place to, not a reliable place to find happiness. Wonderful, healing, beneficial, but not as an aim, but as a byproduct of our practice. So his suggestion, and I just say it again, aim for the highest kind of happiness. Aim for the happiness of insight, the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of seeing life just the way it is, with, without the colored glasses, without the, without the dull, tr- entranced state of endless postponement, uh, postponement without the, the notion that your happiness depends on anything. And find, find, your, find that place in you that's always and is, is always and is free, is peace. As my teacher Punjaji put it, marry the one who won't divorce you. And of course we know that means not just a person. It means that in you which no situation, no condition can take away. And that is the very consciousness, the very nature of the consciousness through which you're perceiving. It's already free. It's already home. Don't lift out of this moment to find relief. Just think about today how many times you lifted out of this moment to plan for your happiness. Now, it's, we all have to plan in our lives. But the planning for happiness is one of the ways that we miss it. We have to plan to make sure that we get to places on time, that we do things that, are, that we organize our lives well, that we set in motion patterns that will be beneficial to us. We all need, we need to study, we need to take care of ourselves, we need all these things. But our happiness, our, that deepest happiness, depends on nothing. It's, your, it's already here. So find that and then go about planning, go about enjoying your life, but without the demand that it has to make you happy. That is misery. Nothing can make you happier than you are. You've probably heard about the little encryption on the cave in Thailand by this fellow who was, had died of dungi fever. And he, it, and they found his body. They found, in, they found etched on the walls of the cave, Oh, what a joy to find there's no happiness in this world. Be happy. Of course there's happiness in this world. It, you have to look into the, the deep meaning of that. There's lots of happiness. But it's right here. And we're continually draining our, this amazing capacity that we have to be well and happy by looking for it elsewhere.
nothing better than the silence. So let's just sit for a few moments. May all beings aim for the highest happiness. May all beings find peace and happiness. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be liberated. And may our practice tonight, every day, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. So thank you all. March 3rd, uh, half day long. Also a reminder again, the, the uh, room every week costs us $150. Any help with the room rental? There's a room rental basket now. You can give in many different ways here. You can, uh, you can put cash in the basket or checks to the church and it's tax deductible, PayPal, etc. cetera. Uh, you can also... Um, you can also sign up for our service. Uh, we have a service directory, and where another way of offering part of what you do for Mission Dharma. Anyway, thank you for the Donna, and also the teaching teacher Donna basket. That's the way this has gone on for 2,500 years. This my practice of giving, your practice of support, and thank you in advance. And um, happy, be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.